I thought that the idea of docetic ecclesiology is a good idea, you know, so I just would like to share with you some thoughts. When it comes to the church, most Protestant Christians are docetists. They see the real church as a spiritual, invisible entity, while the visible institutional church is simply a human organization. Pentecostals, for instance, may refer to the day of Pentecost as the birthday day of the church. But what is usually meant by the phrase is that each individual receives the filling of the Spirit. The church as a corporate entity is not spiritual. For Pentecostals, the institution is vaporized into a collectivity of individual Spirit-filled Christians. Thus, some early Pentecostals spoke of the day of Pentecost not so much as a paradigmatic event in salvation history, but as a repetitive pattern for individual Christians to experience their own personal Pentecost. The problem with a docetic ecclesiology is that the church as an institution is then treated as a purely human social organization to be run like any other secular organization using sometimes very unchristian methods. This docetic tendency persists because we fail to see the institutional church as a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual reality because it is instituted by Christ, the one anointed by the Spirit and baptizer of the Spirit. As Zizulas puts it, the church is instituted by Christ and constituted by the Spirit. In this talk, however, I would like to qualify this Zizulas axiom by putting it this way. The church is instituted by Christ through the Spirit and constituted by the Spirit in Christ. So let us first consider the first part of this modified Zizulas axiom. The church as instituted by Christ through the Spirit. We see Christ instituting the church in the New Testament in four major acts. Before Pentecost, Christ founds the church through these four acts. The first act is the call of the twelve. We read in the Gospels that before setting apart the twelve, Jesus prayed all night in Luke 6, 12-16. To these he also gave power, the power of exorcism and healing, Matthew 10, 1-2. Although the Spirit is not explicitly mentioned here, it is clear from the actions of Jesus in his calling of the twelve that the power of the Spirit is at work. Why did Jesus have this special group of twelve disciples with whom he spent a great deal more time? Why did he reveal the secrets of the kingdom to the twelve, whereas to the crowds he spoke in parables, according to Matthew 13? The answer is quite obvious. He was preparing the church, which is patterned after the 12 tribes of Israel that constitute the foundation of the nation of Israel. The number 12 is clearly meant to be symbolic. The question is sometimes asked about who exactly were the 12? Was it Matthias who was elected to replace Judas Iscariot? Was it St. Paul who clearly understands his calling as an apostle as equal to that of the other apostles, for example, in his letter to the Galatians? 
The question of who make up the 12 is perhaps not as important as the number 12 itself. This is clearly from the, a scene from the election of Matthias before Pentecost. Peter explains that the replacement of Judas is to fulfill scripture, and I quote, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David, Acts 1.15. In other words, the election of Matthias was seen as a spirit-inspired act. There has to be the twelfth before the coming of the Spirit to constitute the church as the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In the Old Testament, we notice a great deal of flexibility in the way the 12 tribes are configured. For example, when Levi is left out in the organization of the 12 tribes around the tabernacle, the number 12 is created by splitting the tribe of Joseph into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. But when Levi is included among the 12, then Ephraim and Manasseh are combined as a tribe of Joseph. This flexibility extends into Revelation chapter 7. The 12 tribes named include Levi, Ephraim, Manasseh, but then the tribe of Dan is left out. What is significant is the number 12 rather than the specific identities of the 12. In Revelation 21, we see the church in its final form where the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gates and the names of the 12 apostles form the foundation. But it is interesting to note that their names are not given. Yeah. We read, it had a great wall, a high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city, um, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We see the church in its fullness in this picture given to us in Revelation 21. Israel could be said to be the beginning of the church. The 12 gates suggest that God's purpose for the entire world was to come through Israel. The 12 gates are strategically located with three on each side of the city walls. They are open to the four corners of the world. As God, uh, God promised Abraham, by you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God's purpose was to welcome all into the holy city the new Jerusalem, and Israel could be said to be the gateway. But the foundation of the church has the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Jesus, who called the 12, was in fact laying the foundation of the church. Israel prepared the way for the whole church to be built. So this is the first act. The second act of Jesus was at the Last Supper. This is the second institutional act before Christ's crucifixion. It is the anticipation of the new covenant that Jesus is about to ratify by his death, resurrection, and ascension. In the act of eating and drinking, the disciples are bound together in a new covenant. This is my body broken for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Through this institu institutional act, Jesus intends for his apostles to become spiritually blood brothers. 
through this covenantal act of eating and drinking, Jesus has created a new spiritual family. In John's Gospel, the institutional act is not expressed in terms of the Lord's Supper, but we see Jesus as the lawgiver, giving to the, the apostles the new commandment, just as Yahweh gave the Ten Commandments to Moses for the people. Just as the law sets, we could say, the legal framework for the established Israel as a nation, similarly, the new commandment sets the framework for the establishment of the new Israel represented by the twelve apostles. The third act is a post-resurrection gift of the Spirit, found in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. This is one of the strangest events that has attracted a number of different interpretations. Let me read that passage to you if you are not familiar, but I'm sure when you, I read it, you will remember. It goes like this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There's a whole host of uh, New Testament scholars who have uh, tackled this text, and uh, I won't uh, spend time you know, in, in, in dealing with all the varied interpretations. Uh, some think that this is John's way of referring to Pentecost. Others think that it is, a, it is a special gift of new life in the Spirit, but not as the paraclete. Still others think that it is a gift of the Spirit in anticipation of the day of Pentecost. But most interpreters or interpretations do not specify what this gift is for. If we look at the surrounding actions of Jesus before he said to his disciples, receive the Spirit, we notice three things. First, he assures them of his real presence. After saying, peace be with you, he shows them his hands and his side to assure them that it was really Jesus that they knew before he died. In other words, here is no docetic Christ. Second, after repeating the peace, he gives them a commission. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. In verse 21. Third, after saying, receive the Holy Spirit, he gives them authority to forgive and withhold sin. All these acts of Jesus are institutional events. First, the assurance of his real presence suggests that whatever the disciples are instructed to do has the backing of his presence. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28. Then the commissioning followed by the promise of forgiving and withholding of forgiveness suggests that Jesus is giving them the authority necessary for the founding and perpetuation of the church as an institution. 
The forgiving and withholding of forgiveness is similar to the apostles being given the authority of binding and losing. Whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven in Matthew 16, 19. And most interpreters would take this to be the power of church discipline. The Spirit is at work in instituting the church as an authority structure. The institution of the church shows the importance of church order and authority. We cannot have a church without an authority structure. This is why the ordained ministry is important. They may be called by different names in different church traditions, bishops, priests, elders, and so forth. A church which rejects clergy tends to split endlessly. We see this in the history of Anabaptism in the 16th century, in the Brethren Movement in the 19th century, and in many other um, uh, Christian movements that reject any form of ecclesiology. The fourth act is the act of incorporation by baptism. This fourth institutional act involves the commissioning of the 11 apostles in Matthew's Gospel which is known as a Great Commission. Of course, you are familiar with that text. Uh, in verse 18, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is with his authority that his apostles are to make dis uh, disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This commission ensures the perpetuation of the church as God's institution. Baptism is the means by which individuals who are incorporated into the church, uh, or rather baptism is the means by which uh, believers or individuals are incorporated into the church the body of Christ. They cease to be individuals at baptism and become, as Zizulas puts it, ecclesial beings. In summary, Christ instituted the church through the Spirit, especially with respect to the church as an authority structure. The visible church is a spirit event brought about by the action of Christ. Now, we come to the next part. The church is constituted by the Spirit, through and in Christ. And this occurs at Pentecost. As already mentioned before the Pentecost event, Matthias was elected to replace Judas Iscariot to make up the twelve. The foundation of the church has to be complete, so to speak, before the Pentecost event constitutes the church as the body of Christ and the temple of the Spirit. Pentecost is the culminating event that makes the church as institution simultaneously a charismatic body. Institution and charisma are distinct but inseparable, just as the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit are distinct and inseparable. They are united in, in that they come from a single source, the Father. Now you can understand why in Eastern Orthodoxy, the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father is taken so seriously and why it is on this issue that they quarrel over the filioque and other things. It is a key to understanding um, 
Orthodox Trinitarian theology. This distinctness and inseparability can be explored from another angle. In John's Gospel, Jesus identifies the Spirit as a distinct person and one who will glorify me. The Spirit glorifies Jesus by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. 1614. But the Spirit also glorifies Christ by raising Him from the dead, reconstituting His mortal body into a glorious body. Romans 8.11 The glorified Christ who ascended into heaven became the Spirit baptizer by sending the Spirit to indwell the church in His own person, constituting the church as the body of Christ and the temple of the Spirit. The church too is glorified by the spirits uniting the body of Christ to the head, making the church what in Roman Catholicism is called the total Christ, totus Christus. Thus the church is now with Christ in the heavenlies, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Now we tend to take this term again very metaphor metaphorically when you talk about the church being in the heavenlies, you know, precisely because of our docetic ecclesiology. See? Whereas this truth is taken quite literally in the Orthodox liturgy. The Orthodox believe that when you are worshipping, you are actually united with the church of heaven. You know, it's not just a metaphor, it's a spiritual reality. In short, the church is instituted by Christ who is anointed by the Spirit and constituted by the Spirit through Christ as Spirit baptizer and in Christ as Christ's body. The dual aspects of the church as a visible, concrete institution and as a charismatic body are as much the work of Christ and the Spirit in the Trinitarian economy. This is why the church in a specific locality or the local church is as truly the church of Christ as the church which exists through space and time or the church universal. Both could be characterized as Catholic according to the whole. The Catholicity of the institutional church may not be clearly seen until the parousia but its Catholicity is guaranteed by Christ and the Spirit. In conclusion, Christ's institution of the church began with the gathering of a group of 12 disciples. He set them in order. He gave them authority to continue the mission he began. The church continues the mission of Christ through disciple-making until the end of time. There is no way to understand it but as a spiritual institution. The church is an authority structure, but this authority structure is not merely an institution, but an institution created by Christ through the power of the Spirit. Christ, glorified by the Spirit in His resurrection and ascension, in turn sends the Spirit to indwell the church, making the church a spiritual body. The New Testament understanding of the church has no place for a docetic ecclesiology which has the appearance of being spiritual in its worship but can be quite secular in its administration and committee meetings. A docetic ecclesiology inevitably polarizes institution and charisma and tends to swing from one end of the pendulum to the other. It constantly fluctuates between the freedom of the spirit and authoritarian control. We see this throughout the history of enthusiastic movements.
from Anabaptism to Brethrenism to the latter rain movement in Pentecostalism to the latest, the New Apostolic Reformation, NAR. The one church, in fact, has a visible and a so-called invisible aspect, just as Christ is one person who is truly God and truly man. The church, in the words of Bulgakov, is a divine humanity. Without some such conception, Protestantism will continually be plagued by a docetic ecclesiology. That's Thank you it. very much, uh, Simon. <clears throat>